0: In the New Testament book of 2 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle John wrote these words. I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us. And he's commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. Well, friends, over the past several weeks, we've been talking about what love does Uh, Love is talked a lot about in our culture today. Uh, We see different groups trying to define it. Movies and TV shows attempt to demonstrate it. Songs are written about it, and politicians base their entire campaigns on this one word, love. As we focus in on what God's word has to say about love, it's easy to see that the world's definition is filled with nothing more than half-truths. Where the world's love is selfish, God's love is selfless steadfast and immovable. John reminds us that we know we're walking in real love when we're doing what God has commanded us to do through his word. Any relationship between a husband and a wife, a son or daughter, a brother or a sister, coworkers, neighbors, or in the body of Christ, any relationship that doesn't walk in obedience to God's word is not living in the kind of love that's described in the New Testament. Any relationship that doesn't walk in obedience to God's word is living a counterfeit love. John's encouragement to God's people is for us to be led by the Holy Spirit, to walk in the truth of the word, and to settle for nothing less than the kind of love that he and the other New Testament authors wrote about. One of these authors is a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. And he describes what love does in one of his letters to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 contains 15 characteristics of love that God wants every follower of Christ to continually live out. In this series, we've been talking about how we can demonstrate these characteristics of love within the context of marriage. But if you're not married, these messages are for you as well because these characteristics describe how we're called to love one another Within the body of Christ. Well, today is going to be the last message in our series, and before we focus in on these last few characteristics, I'd like to read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through seven one more time. And as I read this amazing passage of Scripture, take a moment to celebrate how God has worked in your life and in your marriage over the past several weeks. So if you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word is alive and powerful, and in a world full of half-truths, your word is the only real truth. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us understand and apply your word today. As we talk about these important characteristics of love, help us to love you and love others well. Show us how to love our spouse well. Help us build the kind of marriages that honor you, the kind of marriages that point people to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes today, the first characteristic of love that we're going to talk about is that love always protects. Love always protects. Um, The Greek word for this characteristic is the word stegai, which means to cover as a roof. And that's why this phrase is commonly translated as to protect or to bear patiently. Uh, Here in the NIV, it's translated as love always protects. Roofs are designed to protect us from the elements, and our love towards one another, especially our spouse, is meant to be a protective kind of love. So on Monday morning uh, this past week, I had this message on my mind. I think it's only fitting that on Monday morning, uh, we experienced some really heavy rain. In fact, we've had bad weather pretty much all week. Now, my kids love to wave goodbye to me from the front window of our house as I walk to the car. But on Monday, the entire family was laughing at me from the window because Dad was getting soaked while they were protected inside the house under their roof. Not very loving of them, huh? Marriage includes a lot of things. There are joys and sorrows, successes and failures, all of which you experience together. When you set goals together and pray about what God wants in your marriage, the furthest thing from your mind is that your marriage is a battleground. We learned in week one that there are certain things in this life that are worth fighting for, and marriage should be on that list. Within the marriage relationship, there are some battles that we should be intentional about fighting. These are the battles that pertain to protecting your marriage. Love always protects. So if Christ is at the center of your marriage, and if you're focused on building your marriage by God's design, you can expect that the devil will be working to destroy it. In fact, your marriage has an enemy whose only mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. So it's vital that Christian couples have the right set of tools and the right weapons if they're going to be successful in protecting their marriage against Satan's attacks. In week one, we talked a lot about how God wants you to watch over your marriage in order to protect it. You can protect your marriage by valuing your spouse above all other human relationships, by deciding that divorce is not in your vocabulary, by staying alert and keeping Christ at the center, by regularly investing in your marriage, by guarding your marriage from anything that might be a potential threat, by celebrating the wins in life with your spouse, and by pursuing a shared dream. Uh, These seven things were not an exhaustive list, but they were things that, that I encouraged our church family with. These are ways that you can guard and protect your marriage. These are all important principles that help us fight for a stronger marriage principles that help us watch over in order to protect For this characteristic of love, love always protects I want to share a few more ways that you can be intentional about protecting your marriage so these, these are subpoints today if you're taking notes um, the first is begin each day in the word and in prayer and we've talked about this several times in past messages but Beginning each day in God's word, beginning the day in prayer, that's going to help each day get started on the right path. Now, spending time with the Lord, that's what's going to help build a strong and sturdy roof over your marriage. And when you begin each day in prayer, you have the opportunity to connect with God relationally, to worship him for who he is. You're able to align your life with, with his agenda and his will. You have the opportunity to pray about the needs that you have in in your life and in your family, in your church. You can ask for forgiveness, and you're able to forgive the people who've wronged or hurt you. You can ask God to guard your heart, to guard your marriage. And when you start the day in prayer, you depend on God's leading in your life. You know, this might be the most important step in protecting your marriage. Uh, Begin each day in the word and in prayer. Now, the second thing is safeguard your relationships with the opposite sex. Man, this is so important. I encourage married couples to never put themselves in the position where they have to be alone with another person of the opposite sex for an extended period of time. I know this, this might sound crazy, and uh, for, for some of us, our, our jobs don't really allow us to do this 100% of the time, but studies have shown that affairs typically start with the harmless act of taking an evening jog, attending a sporting event or participating in any number of social activities with another person of the opposite sex. So if your spouse isn't able to participate in an activity with you, do it as a group with, with friends or simply don't do it at all. One of the best ways to develop eyes for another person, which is not good, someone who's not your spouse, is by spending time with them alone. So this, this principle is a guardrail that needs to be discussed between married couples. I want to encourage you to do that. Talk about this with your spouse. Talk about how you can safeguard your relationships with the opposite sex. The third thing is this. Establish accountability in your marriage. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You know, if you want to know what your future looks like, uh, look around at the people you're spending the bulk of your time with. If you want to know what your marriage is going to look like moving forward, look at the other couples that you're spending your time with. I tell people that joining a growth group at church or joining a Sunday school class is a great way to develop healthy friendships with other Christian couples and other families in the church. I also encourage people to find another person of the same sex who can be an accountability partner. That's a great way to establish accountability in your marriage. The truth is, we all need people around us who can encourage us in our faith, who can encourage us in our marriage. We need other families we can invest in as well. So establish accountability in your marriage. The fourth thing is this, uh, spend more time together as a couple. Spend more time together. One of the best ways to protect your marriage is by spending more of the right kind of time together, meeting each other's needs in the ways that only the two of you can. For my wife and I, you know, having at least one hour of guarded time in the evenings that helps us keep our marriage a priority. Unless we're intentional about protecting the time that we have with our spouse, um, all of life's little urgent needs that aren't really that urgent will slowly eat away at the foundation of the house that God is building. So spending more time together as a couple, the right kind of time, is often what a lot of couples need to reprioritize their marriage. So these are just a few ways that you can be intentional about protecting your marriage. Remember, love always protects. And the kind of love that the Apostle Paul wrote about is agape love, love in action. It's a selfless, sacrificial kind of love. It's taking steps to guard and protect the relationship that God has brought together. It's working to keep God at the center when the enemy's mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. The second characteristic that we're going to talk about today is that love always trusts. Love always trusts. Some translations say love believes all things or love never loses faith. One commentator paraphrased this characteristic like this. He said love is always eager to believe the best. So love Real love should lead us to trust and believe the best in others and in our spouse. Now, this doesn't mean that love looks the other way while the people we love do wrong or that we're easily deceived by the wrongdoing of others. What it means is that genuine love is always prepared to give the benefit of the doubt. Genuine love is always prepared to give the benefit of the doubt. This is meant to be a practical way that we love others, but Truth be told, I think many of us struggle with this characteristic of love. Maybe because of past experiences and relationships, we find it hard to believe the best in others. Instead of having a trusting kind of love, we're cynics or we lead a life of suspicion towards others. So if love always believes the best, but your natural reaction is to have a lack of trust. I want to encourage you to pray about this. Ask God to help grow this important characteristic in you. If this characteristic is evident in the life of our church and in our marriages, we're going to believe the best in others until we're given a reason not to. I fully understand that trust takes time to build. And when trust is broken, it can take a long time to build it back. But God wants us to be people who learn to always believe the best, who always trust. Let me give you a quick illustration of what it looks like to have a lack of trust, a lack of love towards others in this area. The book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, at least in terms of when it was written, if not the oldest. Here's a quick look at the book of Job from 30,000 feet. So in the first three chapters, you have Job's distress. He loses his wealth, his family, his livestock, his health. He loses everything. In chapters 4 through 31, We read about Job's defense. So he debates with his three friends. I don't really think they're friends, and you're going to see that. And he responds to their false accusations. And then finally, Job 38 through 42 highlights Job's deliverance. So God humbles him, and then he honors Job and gives him twice as much as he had before. God's word tells us that Job was, was blameless and upright, that he feared God and he shunned evil. We learn that he had seven sons and three daughters. I mean, you can read all about his life and about his family in the first chapter of the book. Job experienced some of the most difficult trials and testing that we read about in all of God's word. His life was increasingly taken away from him as God allowed Satan to destroy his livestock, his possessions, his children, his health. And that's where his so-called friends come in at the end of chapter 2. Listen to what we read in Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So at this point, it seems like these guys are pretty good friends. I mean, they showed up, they were present when their friend was going through the worst thing that he'd ever gone through. And then the first friend decides to speak up. Eliphaz starts talking to Job. And we see this towards the beginning of chapter four. I don't have time to go through the entire chapter and the entire conversation, but I want you to notice what he says in verses seven and eight. He says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So it's kind of like his friend is saying, Job, I've sat with you for a few days now, and as far as I can see, you're the problem. The reason you're suffering like this is because somewhere along the line, you really messed up. That's because upright people don't have to go through things like this. Innocent people don't perish. So judging by the season that you're in and all that you've had to go through, you must be the problem. You you must be the worst kind of sinner. I want to share this story with you because I think it highlights exactly what we're talking about. If love always trusts, his friends didn't love him at all. If love always believes the best until proven wrong, these men decided to be unloving by jumping to conclusions. If they really loved their friend, they would have addressed things differently. And this characteristic of love is is challenging for me. And I think it's challenging for many of us, especially if you're a perfectionist or you have to make sure that everything is always right and always in order. This characteristic is applicable at work and in the church, but it's especially timely for our marriages. You know, personally, I struggle with feeling like everything has to be done my way, and if it's not done right, it's because there must be something wrong with the other person. In fact, I've noticed that when I choose to not believe the best in others, especially my spouse, I end up bringing them down instead of building them up. Friends, I wish I had all the answers when it comes to this characteristic of love. But the truth is, this is likely something that many of us struggle with and and many of us need to pray about. We need to pray that God would develop this characteristic in our church, in our relationships, and in our our marriages. We need to pray that God would help us understand what love always trusts means and how we can live this out in our lives. So I want to encourage you to pray about that. Love always trusts. The third characteristic is that love always hopes. The Greek word for this characteristic is the word El elpizai el it kind of sounds like pizza, Elpizai, And this word means that love is always looking forward or love refuses to take failure as final. You could say that failure is never fatal where love exists. So if a friend overreacts towards you for whatever reason, this kind of love reassures them that they haven't permanently harmed the relationship. It's the kind of love that a parent has towards their child when the child messes up, but the parent treats them as though failure isn't final. This is the kind of love that hangs on during difficult seasons. It's the kind of love that never gives up. This is the kind of love that God has towards us. Throughout Scripture, we read about how God's people consistently turn their backs on him, choosing to disregard his commands and wandering away from him as they went their own way. Yet promises like Second Chronicles 7.14 are seen throughout the Bible. This verse says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God's love towards his people is consistent, even when we mess up. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but instead reminds us of where he's leading us. So love always hopes. This is also the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. This is the kind of love that encouraged a father to wake up every day hoping and believing that his son would come home. And we're not given insight into the father's conversation with his wife, but you have to wonder if each day he said something like this, I bet today's the day when our son comes home. You know, he, he believed, he hoped that his son would return. Love always hopes. It's always looking forward. It refuses to take failure as final. In your marriage, it might be that your spouse has been wandering in their faith. Maybe their relationship with the kids isn't all that great. Or maybe they've all but given up at work. This kind of love never gives up on them. This kind of love keeps praying for them, believing that God's not done working in their life. So Even when things go wrong in your marriage, when you experience rough patches, and we all do, we all will, it doesn't have to be the end because love always hopes. There's always the hope of restoration. There's always the hope of reconciliation. And friends, we have this hope because of the hope that we have in Christ love always hopes. The fourth and final characteristic for this message and for our series is that love always perseveres. Love always perseveres. So today we've seen that love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and now love always perseveres. For this final characteristic, um, we're actually gonna celebrate the seasoned marriages in our church. In fact, I've asked four couples who've been married uh, for 50 years or more uh, to join me on stage this Sunday and uh, to share their number one tip for a successful marriage, uh, for having a marriage that perseveres. So as you listen to the podcast, I want to encourage you to join in uh, this Sunday at 10 a.m. and watch the service live, or if you can't make it at 10 a.m., go back and watch the service through our YouTube channel. Um, you're going to want to hear some of these testimonies. I think it's going to be a great Sunday uh, to celebrate. We're going to celebrate God's faithfulness. And we're going to celebrate these marriages that have persevered uh, in the good times and the bad, for better, for worse. And I think that's going to be such an encouragement to our church family. Well, friends, it's been a privilege to go through 1 Corinthians 13 with you. I hope this has blessed your life. I hope that it has blessed your marriages. I'm choosing to thank God in advance for all that he's going to do in the life of our church because his word has been preached.